It demands that we tell sinners the whole truth. We will not go quietly into the night. Christian Cornerstone Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Cornerstone Podcast, brought to you by yours truly, Mr. Bald Bill Rick Secker. Um, and now we're getting into our third episode. And again, as I set this up here, uh, I'm getting a, the setup on my laptop so that way I can monitor uh, any comments or viewers that we have uh, during this broadcast. Um, unfortunately, I can't exactly say, you know, turn it on. I've got to scroll down to the video, I've got to click the video, I've got to expand the video, making sure. There we go. I haven't done this enough. So I'm kind of, uh, you would say, rusty uh, as far as the routine, as far as what this would happen. So uh, today we're getting into our third church. Uh, this is a church of compromise. Uh, this scene, this episode, the series, uh, we've repeat this uh, every year. I believe, uh, in my personal uh, opinion, I believe this is really something that we need to go back and evaluate uh, as believers, as Christians, as a means to, um, uh, to, to evaluate our churches. Uh, you know, based on personal experiences in the past, uh, like I shared the other day, based on personal experiences and doing a study on this, I was like, holy cow, this, this is rich. Um, and at that time, I would say, what, two, about two years ago, I think is what it was, 2018 or 2020, as yes, two, two years ago is when it happened. This is actually probably my first study, two years ago, was my first study on the churches of Revelation. And um, it was a really good one. And I, I've, after doing that study, I, uh, I felt that, like I said, this is something that the church itself uh, should be evaluating Every year, uh, we need to decide if we need to find is where do we have sin? And yes, the answer will be yes, there is sin in the church. Um, now, is there an active sin? Is there a habitual sin? Is there a constant lifestyle of sin that's going on within the church? And it's not just referring to the individuals, but also the church as a community. These letters, these seven letters, are seven letters written to seven churches to seven pastors to deliver to seven congregations of that time. So uh, it's very important to recognize that. This is not a letter just to the individual. Now, um, we are in a crisis. Uh, we have shared this already. Uh, you know, the, the coronavirus or the what's known as uh, COVID-19 is kind of roaming around. Plus side is, I, I uh, saw an article the other day China is beginning to open their doors again. They've, um, I don't, I haven't really kept up on the medical side, med medical status of that, but from the sound of things, about last week or so, um, I think it was two weeks ago now, actually, they've uh, developed a vaccine and given it to some patients. They saw some patients recovering, um, so they decided to release these patients, and since then, they did not, in, in a, and I don't know what the measurement is now, but in a two-day time period, they did not receive any new cases. And that's a huge plus, being that it was in China. It was more uh, being circulated among the uh, Chinese community more. 
faster, quicker, however you would like to go with that. So it's a very positive thing you know, that you see in two days that there's no account of this disease. Uh, and then the other day, like I said, they were beginning to open their doors. You know, businesses were beginning to reopen um, after a couple weeks. But regardless, this is still something we need to take into consideration. And I, again, I don't know the science behind this. I don't know really. I personally don't see this as a huge problem um, other than the fact of the rate of spreading. And the, from what I've heard, the rate of mutation. Um, that's the biggest concerns. But regardless... Like I shared yesterday, I do believe 100% that this this is what I would call a micro-judgment on the nations. Um, in fact, I just saw an article that uh, says that I can't remember what the country was, but there was a country in Africa that had not experienced any single reports of this disease in their community. And the article was, was explaining, or was showing, it's a video actually, the video was showing that these individuals were faithful in their prayers, faithful to God. So to me, that shows the possibility that God chose to protect them because they were his children. He's not bringing the judgment on them. Does that mean that we can have, that we will have a safe and comfortable life and, you know, uh, uh, free of diseases? No, it does not. Um, but being that this is, um, again, if this is a judgment from God, then it would be upon the pagan nations, the pagan religions, uh, the false believers of all sorts, uh, those who are not uh, the people of God. So uh, that's where I'm convinced. But we as a church still need to take this into consideration, not just as a disease, but we need to recognize this as a possible judgment. And if so... Take it into consideration. Where is our sin? Because as we find out through these letters to these seven churches, five of them are in sin, five of them are guilty, and five of them are being rebuked uh, for the existing sin. And Christ lets them know, it says, if you do not repent of your sins, uh, and this is referring as a congregation, keep that in mind. If you do not repent of your sin, then I will remove the lampstand. That's what he says to the church at Ephesus. Um, and in this one here, he says, uh, therefore, repent. And if you do not repent, we'll get to this in a minute. But it says here, if you do not repent, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So he brings, uh, he refers to himself as a judgment um, against the church. So we need to take that into under uh, consideration, and we're getting into a church of compromise. Uh, and before before we really get into this study, a couple of things I want to make note is uh, those of you who are watching the video, um, I think it's important that you check out some of those articles. I haven't had the chance to read them just yet. I woke up, I put some stuff together, uh, and I'm recording right now. So, but I put some links together in the description of this video. Uh, related to you know other ministries giving some comments on a church and compromise, and you know if you feel compelled to, I would strongly encourage you to check that out. Check out those additional links; they'll be at the bottom of the description. Uh, I think they will be very helpful uh, for you, uh, you know, in further study. But uh, we, as a church, the church itself globally, or more specifically, and I, I can't really I can't really attest to the rest of the world because I have never been out of country, but I can tell you that here in America, 
you see on online, you know, in these news feeds, um, you know, live streams, for an example, and you know, even if you were to go to churches, there is a lot of compromise, a lot of compromise. Uh, you know, we one of my biggest concerns is the wrongful identity of love. Um, I'm not going to go over that right now. Uh, you can actually read about it in my book. Uh, I don't have a copy here in front of me. I ordered some. I'm waiting for them to be delivered. Um, but I, uh, in my book, I discussed a little bit of um, of love, the, the godly agape love that's within the text. So um, you can check that out a little bit, more of my comments on that if you'd like to. You can actually buy the book from Christian Cornerstone, the video link up top, christiancornerstone.org. And go, just go to the store page, and the link to purchase the book will be there. You can purchase a uh, digital copy if you have an Apple. If you have an iPhone, just go to the iBook store, and you can purchase a digital copy there. Or if you'd like a hard copy, you can do it straight uh, on the uh, blurb, uh, publishing page as well. But anyways, um, we have a lot of things going on within the church. Uh, false religions, false ideas, false theologies. Uh, a lot of false falsifications. I don't even know if that's a word, but a lot of falsifications are going on within the church today, and it's quite concerning. And we we often think that we as a church need to um, we need to try to share this video uh, properly. So. Um, I'm getting a little distracted right now. I'm trying to share this on my personal page. So that is uh, really fun. All right, there it is. And sharing. Okay, we're good to go. Now that I have you guys all back, you have my attention. Let me turn my phone off so I don't get any distractions here. But uh, we have these distractions. Uh, surprise, distractions. We have these uh, compromises within the church. And there's a book. Um, I haven't read it uh, just yet. Uh, because this was where my study started. Uh, I've actually read a number of other books uh, relating to the churches in Revelation. Um, but I would personally recommend, mostly because I'm a fanboy, uh, John MacArthur's book called Christ's Call to Reform the Church. And I'll see about getting a link on that on our website uh, so we can add that to our little archive of videos. Um, and... Oh, one of the things I wanted to share, we'll share this and then we'll really get into this, because I think I think MacArthur here in this commentary, I think he does a wonderful job basically laying it out of what the church of compromise looks like. And then once I go into that, uh, this is just a little small uh, two paragraphs here. And uh, I, I have a couple verses I want to share with you to kind of stress this point, to be separated from the world. So as I can get this little leaflet thing there okay so here's what MacArthur has to say on this this is the term worldliness sounds archaic to many in the church today they dismiss it as a concern for a gentler less enlightened time back when card games and dancing were considered major threats to the sanctity and the purity of the church that's actually kind of interesting to think about really um, in fact, some believers are so enamored with their freedom in Christ that they view any discussion of worldliness as a worn-out, legalistic imposition. In spite of a clear statement from heaven that friendship with the world is hostility or hatred uh, or enmity toward God, 
and that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This comes from John 4.4, 4, which we'll actually read here in a minute. Um, and the, the suggestion that Christians should separate themselves from world values and worldly amusement is a non-starter. Instead, the church today works incredibly hard to appear as much like the culture as possible. For decades, as, the church, as uh, it has been popular for church leaders to make their services look, sound, and feel exactly like a secular gathering and events, many churches today are indistinguishable from concert venues, theaters of the world. They fastidiously imitate the latest lifestyle in fashion and pop culture trends uh, and desperate to seem relevant and cool. This other piece here that I want to share here. It says here, this is, this is the last comment, last paragraph here we'll share. It says, but worldliness, this is further down the next page. We're skipping quite a few. But worldliness does not make the gospel look attractive. It makes it look impotent. These churches need to realize the grave disservice they are doing to, cause the, to, to the cause of Christ and the progress of the gospel. A church that's just like the world has nothing to offer the world. It's merely a more disposable entertainment. How should they think of worldliness? Of, of, how should they think such worldliness could be offered to God as worship? Now, the scripture tells us here, this is from John 15, 18 through 20. Uh, MacArthur shares this. He says, if the world hates you, you know it hates me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, uh, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they, keep, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. Now, the interesting piece, uh, what, what's in that, and I think this is something that we should really bring into attention, is this, as uh, MacArthur shares in his book, is the concert theme worship. Uh, I'll be completely honest with you. When it comes to a, a worship service, um, that looks like a concert venue. You turn the lights off, and quite frankly, I don't like the lights off. Um, I read an article some time ago that basically said it's a psychological thing to, to build up the emotion. Um, and one church uh, from this article, I remember, I'd have to find it, but they said they did an experiment, and they kept the lights on for some time. And as they kept the lights on, they found that more people began to sing in worship. So psychologically, the people who would see that the lights are off, they're less likely to worship, more, more susceptible to keeping their hands in their pockets, um, to keep their mouth quiet. And I'll, I'll be quite honest with you, I, I'm that guy. Um, I, and it's not because I don't, I don't want to worship. It's because I'm quite frankly turned off by this whole emotional atmosphere that the church tries to bring to turn the musical aspect of worship into some sort of entertainment concert type theme. Uh, and I get turned off by that. And I especially get turned off by a lot of songs or one specifically, Reckless Love. I was like, I, that's not even a worship song. That, that shouldn't even be in the church. So honestly, you know, when I hear, excuse me, when I hear that specific song, I sit down. I sit down because I'm like, that's not worship. That's fault. That's wrong. That's that's problematic theology. 
So, anyways, we have this. We have, we've got a couple verses I'd like to share. We cannot, as Christians, we cannot take part within the world system. We cannot be a part of it. Uh, we can we cannot live as the world lives is what I should say because we as believers must be able to go out into the world. Um, in fact, uh, let me look this up here real quick. I do have it. It is First uh, Corinthians. I want to say it's First uh, Corinthians five eleven is my guess. Let's see here. What does this verse have to tell us? We'll go to the NIV translation here. Uh, here you go. It says here, um, I am writing to you. We'll go to the next verse here as well. I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slander or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Essentially, there's such sin going on in this world that Paul is saying that if, if this is an active lifestyle of sin that's going on within the church, these people are false believers. You should not associate. You don't even eat at the same table as them. Why? Why don't we eat? I thought we were supposed to be loving and you know, accepting all people. It's like, okay, not to accept all people, to embrace their lifestyle, but to accept them and recognize their sins and their need and their desire for repentance. You say, okay, you're sick, you're full of disease, come on to the hospital. We'll get you taken care of. But he says here previously in this uh, chapter, he says, um, let's see, I wrote to you, um, let's see here, I'm trying to find it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexual immoral, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral, but who, um, or who are greedy and swindlers and such. So basically what he's saying here is I'm not telling you that you should step away from the world completely, that you should not associate with the sexually immoral uh, you know, swindlers, idolaters, and everything else. But what I'm telling you is that if this is a lifestyle, an active lifestyle that's being accepted or, or, or that's coming within the church, then these are the people that you should be avoiding because it is a sign to them that you do not approve of their lifestyle, you do not approve of their habits, and they will either, one, leave the church. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, I do believe that this is a good thing to happen in, in some cases. They will leave the church because they do not feel welcome. They do not feel as if they're being accepted. Well, it's because you're living a habitual lifestyle. You haven't repented of your sins. But what he's saying here is they'll either, they'll either leave the church or they will repent of their sins. So there's a reason why we should not eat at the same table. Uh, now, we have here again, uh, you know, we say it's like, wait, 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 okay. So, you know, that's bringing some sort of division. That's also bringing some sort of uh, false sense of peace, isn't it? Um, you know, aren't we supposed to be at peace? Aren't we supposed to be friends with the whole world? You know, Paul makes that. He says, when, when and if ever possible, be at peace. Well, here's the thing. This is what Christ has to say about peace. While he is the peacemaker, he is the peacemaker between man and God. We, in our human nature, are sinful. We are, re we are uh, rebellious we are naturally at war with God. And what Paul, what Jesus has to say about this, or Jesus is called the Prince of Peace because he is the peacemaker between our war between man and God. But when it comes between man and man, that's a completely different story. He hasn't come to give peace to the entire world. 
he doesn't, he's not saying you will be at peace or you should be at peace. What he says here, let me find this out here. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Uh, you can write these down if you'd like. We're not going over all of them. Uh, I guess we are going all over them, but we're not going to do a complete study. I just kind of want to set the stage a little bit for what we're getting into with a church of compromise. So it says here, these are the words of Christ. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. He has not come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but I have come to bring a sword. I have come to set a man against his father. I have come to set a woman, a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Uh, a person's enemies will be those in his own household. And what Christ is essentially saying there is his message of repentance, the gospel truth. This is the message that does not bring peace among people, but it will bring division. It will bring separation. This is something that we as believers will deal with, even in our own households. There will be division because there will be those who have repented of their sins and turned to Christ and those who are still in their sin and turn to the world in the flesh and live, as Christ would say, children of the devil, John chapter 8. Um, we also have one more piece here, two more pieces, I'm sorry. This other verse, again, comes from Christ. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And he says, he has these words to say. It says, no one can serve, this is referring to uh, money, but not limited to no one can serve two masters, for the either will hate one and love the other. He will devote, he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, in the commentary I have here, this is referring to, um, you know, earthly material treasures. It's not just talking about your financial money, you know, your, your couple dollar bills you have in your wallet. But he's saying you can't serve God and you, can, you can't serve both God and the world. You're either going to hate one or the other. There's no in-between. There's no compromise. But that's unfortunately where we are at today. Now, I did lose my spot as far as our reading, the final reading. So I do have to look this up real quick. So what I want to focus on here, actually, I don't think I have. Ah, there we go. I do have uh, my bookmark there. Awesome. Okay, so in John chapter, or it's not John, James chapter 4. Um, the focus is John chapter or James 4 4, but I want to read this first uh, section 1 through 10 to give us the full context of what is going on. He says, What causes quarrels? What causes quarrels? Uh, and who, who, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is not this that your passions are war within you, your desire and do not have, so you mur your desire you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and, you, uh, and do not receive because you ask from wrongful motives. You know, you spend it on your passions. In other words, the person's desire is, as Christ said, it is of the world, it is of the flesh, it is of the money. So when you're asking God for your own personal gain, for your own personal you know, you know, status among the world, he says no, because you're asking with wrongful motives. It says, you adulterous people. Keep in mind, this is a message for the church uh, or for the, for the religious community. This isn't just for the world. It says, you adulterous people. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity against uh, enmity with God, or in other words, is war against God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And do you suppose it is not it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit, and that he made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and draw near, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded, that's referring, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm a part of this world. You uh, be wretched, be, be mourn, or be wretched and mourn and weep. And let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, but therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So that first kind of brings some questions. Like, okay, be wretched, be filthy, be sinful. No. I'm not saying to take part in the world, but recognize your wretchedness. Recognize your sins. And repent of them. Mourn over them. Weep over them. Cry out to God for, for cleansing, for purity. We need to recognize that we are separated from the world and we should live separate from the world. We should not continue, we should not turn the church into some sort of entertainment. As I said here, let me read this here. Uh, we should not, uh, I'm, it's too small of letters, but basically what I'm getting at is we should not turn the church, we should not make the church look more attractive. Um, you know, to bring people in. Because naturally, the church itself is not attractive. The message of the gospel is not attractive. In fact, there's one book um, I can't exactly uh, remember. There's one book I read. I can't remember which one it is. I think it's actually one I'm reading right now. Um, the Essays on the Sufficiency of Scripture. I got it from uh, Grace to You Ministries. And in one passage, or one section of the book, they refer to the gospel... The true message of the gospel is offensive to the natural man. So if you're doing that, if you're delivering the true gospel to man, you are naturally going to look like you are, in fact, offending them. It is not going to be something that's appealing, appealing or enticing. So this really brings us to our study, a 30-minute introduction right there. It brings us to our study, um, which is a good thing. I've got, um, you know, it's a really short uh, commentaries here that I have to share. But um, this brings us into our study of uh, the, the church at Pergamum. The church of Pergamums, their sin, this is the, second, the third church in which Christ is writing to, but this is the second church that has sin involved in their life. Now, background to this, uh, to this church, it was a city known of authority, Pergamum, founded no later than 399 B.C., so just shy of 400 B.C., uh, became the capital of the Roman province of Asia, the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, giving the traveler the impression of a royal city, the home of authority. Located about 60 miles north of Smyrna, uh, and 15 miles from the Aegean Sea, or again, I'm not exactly sure the proper pronunciation, Pergamum was a center of learning. It was of medicine and religious books. So they were, they were pretty pretty prominent place. So, you know, if you, you, needed, uh, you needed to learn something, you're going to go to Pergamum. 
Uh, noted for its Marvel carvings, uh, it excelled the other six cities in the architectural beauty. So this was one of the, what we would call this, one of the seven splendors of the world. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't even know what, what the seven wonders of the world are. But I, at this time, this was probably one of the most beautiful places you could come across. So they worshipped Zeus of Olympus, the so-called savior god, which uh, Athens, they did as well. Or they, they referred to Paul as Zeus, thinking he was a god, uh, which he rejects. Um, Athena, the patron goddess of Athens, and the Roman emperor, of course, like we discussed uh, last week. Or not last week, yesterday, as we discussed yesterday, that the emperor himself deemed himself to be a god. And you could worship any other god that you wanted to, even the Christian god, as long as you worshipped Caesar first. Of course, the Christians did not, in fact, do that. Dionysus was the god of debauchery, Asclepius of the god of healing. In fact, we for Asclepius, we still have the... which or, uh, Asclepius was a snake-like god. Um, and they used snakes to heal, or they believed that if you laid with snakes, um, that the Asclepius divine healing properties, healing powers, would be imputed to uh, to these snakes, and as they're slithering around all over you, you would be healed. That unfortunately is a pagan, cultic um, thing. In fact, I actually saw an article last year. I think is what it was that this is being done in New York somewhere. Um, so that's really of no surprise. Uh, the animal, the animal cult worship of the god serpent, this was Asclepium, and the god bull were also practiced. Some scholars believe that Gaius, uh, addressed by John, in John's third letter, his third epistle, was the first bishop of Pergamum. So, uh, getting into this uh, reading here, uh, first we have... Uh, uh, let's open our books or Bibles open up to Revelations chapter 2, verse uh, 12 through 17. And we'll have this up here on the screen for those of you who are watching along. Okay, that is the wrong page. There we go. That's much more beautiful, isn't it? Okay, so according to Revelation, this is what Christ writes to the third church. And to the angel, as we said, this would be the pastor, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Let's get this a little bit bigger for y'all. Um, to, the, to the church in Pergamum, write these words. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If you if not, I will come to you. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, so that no one knows except the one who receives it. This, my friends, is the word of God given to us. 
Now, as we open this up, or we kind of dissect this study a little bit, I want to give you, I want to focus on this introduction here. First in verse 12, uh, to the angel, he says, to, the, to uh, the words of him, referring to Jesus. These, these, are, these are the words of Christ, the very one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And he, he reiterates this uh, down in chapter, or verse 16. He says, I will come to you with the sword of my mouth. In other words, a decree of judgment. But he does so, Christ introduced himself in this way through all of these churches. To Ephesus, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hands, the one who walks and moves among the golden lampstands. Um, in Smyrna, he is the first and the last, and the one who is dead now returned to life, and now here in Pergamum, he is the one with a double-edged sword. Now, this sword itself is a rather interesting piece. And first, uh, in Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4, chapter 12, um, wow, I got that really mixed up. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It really gives a good explanation of what this is. Um, that it is, uh, in fact, I don't even have this up here. I want to give you word for word. I don't like paraphrasing um, too much. So let me get this up here. Hebrews 4, 12. Let's get this verse up here for y'all. Uh, Y'all, it sounds like I'm a little southern hick or something like that. It says, the words of God is alive and it is active. And the word of God being the sacred text we have today, the Genesis to Revelation. Excluding the Apocrypha. Uh, those are the Catholic canon. The, the word is, uh, of God is alive and active. In fact, it is so active, it is so alive, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword that penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is interesting. I, I really, uh, really enjoy that. Is what Christ is essentially saying here. You know, I am the one. Let me go back to that here. He says, I am the one that holds the swords. I have the, the what does it say here? I have my, uh, the sword of my mouth is what he says. And this sword here is, this is the word of God that is so strong, so powerful, is able to divide the soul, the spirit, the joints, and the marrow. And not only that, but it also judges the thoughts and the attitudes. And it gives a right judgment every single time. This is what Christ is. This is what he says. Now, he, he's coming to this church with an accountability. He's saying, you know, you guys have done a great job. Um, you know, you guys have been, you've held fast. In the times you have not denied my faith or faith in me, you have continued your faith in me, even when you saw the faithful witness Antipas be killed a martyr's death um, in the place where Satan dwells. So he begins this letter with a commendation, um, you know, letting them know it's like you've, you've remained faithful. But what's interesting about this is, is verse 13. Verse 13, he says this, uh, you, they live where Satan's throne is. Now, I actually had this conversation with a, uh, a friend of mine the other day. I can't exactly remember what we were discussing. But one of the things uh, you mentioned, you know, because he watched the show Lucifer. In fact, I, I've actually watched that too. It's rather interesting. Theologically, it is errored like crazy. But it kind of, it's interesting to get, see that perspective. But um, one of the things you need to note is that Satan himself, hell is not his kingdom it is not where his throne is. Hell itself is a prison. It is a prison of God. It is his dungeon, so to speak. Um, it is a place where the the wicked will be tortured. And, of course, it was originally designed for Satan and the demons that followed him, or the angels that followed him in the fall, 
Um, but because of our sinful, because of what, what Satan has done, influenced mankind to sin, he says, okay, this was not the plan, but we've got to make room. We've got to open this up to the rest of the condemned world for disobeying my word. So Satan's throne is in this world today. Uh, his kingdom is not hell. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a place of punishment. But uh, he, while he is on earth, he, while, while earth does exist, this is where his throne is. Why he chose Pergamum, I don't know. Um, probably if you look at it on a chart, if you look at the seven churches of Revelation, you'll see that it kind of gives a triangle effect and Pergamum is at the top. Um, it's possible that, you know, he wanted a place of, you know, it, that it, it signifies a place of power. Um, and as we read from the background, it, it, it excelled, um, you know, compared to the other, other uh, six churches that we are reading about. So it is possible that, you know, he saw that this is the best place to build my throne because it's, it's awesome. And I'm convinced that Zeus was, in fact, at that time, you know, says that as their savior God, I am convinced that Satan was, uh, Satan, or that Zeus was Satan in disguise. Um, and that he was the false savior. And I'm, I'm also convinced of possible mystic supernatural events that might have even taken place there to, um, to trick people into thinking that Zeus was, in fact, a god. Um, as well as these other gods, I'm convinced that that could have happened. Uh, but there's really no, to my knowledge, there's no evidence behind that. Now in John chapter 12, verse 31, it refers to Satan as the tyrant of this world. As I said, John 12, verse 31. And as well as 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. It refers to him as the god of this age. Or, depending on your translation, the God of this world. This world we live in is Satan's domain. This is where he roams. This is where he exists. And this is why Christianity is so hated, because this is his kingdom. Anything that is of God, his, his, his ultimate rival, his ultimate enemy, um, and ultimately the one who will conquer this kingdom, anybody who is of, of that, he hates. So it's... it's, it's it, it's no surprise in which we fear, which we experience this um, rejection from the world. Now, they've remained faithful. They've remained entrusting in, in as a church. The true believers have kept the faith and they have endured the hardship. They have, they have come from following Christ. Um, like we said, even so, Antipas, a faithful man of God, was killed right in front of them. But that's not it. See, even though they've remained faithful in this, they've continued to teach the word of God, they're still compromised. They still fall short. There is still a sin that needs to be addressed and needs to be corrected within the church. And that is the church of, or that is the compromise. It says, they have held, uh, they have tolerated the teachings of Balaam, which is a prophet for hire. And you know you can check uh, uh, you can check some additional notes in um, verse uh, and you, you, well we'll actually get back to that here in a, a minute, um, but uh, I actually have a, a short page here that I want to share. It's from an article from Got Questions, but they they've really compromised with the world. They've given the world what they want. To make the church, as we've said, to make the church itself look more attractive, look more appealing to the world. 
and others holding to the Nicolaitans, which we find in uh, chapter 2, verse 6, the church at Ephesus, Christ also hated. So he's most likely hating these people who are, um, you also have some here, it says in verse 15, it says you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You guys need to purge yourself. You have pagan religions influencing my church, my community. Get rid of the teachings of Balaam. Teach him as heresy. Teach him as blasphemy. Teach him as a perversion of my word. And you also have those of the Nicolaitans. Get rid of them. And he says in that text, he says, I have a few things. Reading this real quick before I get into those notes there. He says, I have a few things against you. Um, you hold to the teachings of Balaam, which we'll find out what these teachings are here in a minute. Who took Balak... And put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. There was a stumbling block. There was a, 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 an influence, a perversion of the, of the faith. So that they might eat foods, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So this stuff was being influenced. This stuff was, was influencing the church that was established. And all for the sake of being loving, the church accepted it. They did not correct it. And even more so, you also, which I've already addressed to the people of Ephesians, or the, the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, I've already told them, and I'm telling you the same thing. You even have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And as we said here, this too is a people in which Christ hates. And his command is for them to repent. And if they don't, again, their church will be removed. Now this uh, note here, as I said, the doctrine of Balaam, or the teachings of Balaam. What is this? This comes from uh, gotquestions.org, uh, is where this came from. And what we have here is in Revelations chapter 2, this is where it's at, that this is the complete article. Uh, in Revelations 2.14, the church of Pergamum is scolded for tolerating the teachings of Balaam, or in other words, the doctrines of Balaam. Balaam's name is also invoked in 2 Peter 2.15 and Jude 1.11, both in warnings about the conduct and the message of false teachers. Of these are references, these are all references of Old Testament characters. And much like Christ did this um, in his ministry when he calls uh, when he calls John uh, Elijah, that Elijah did come. In fact, he's already come. Um, you know, he, he's referring to the character of John, which mirrors or reflects the same character of um, Elisha. So, in a sense, Elisha did, in fact, come. And this is the same thing that's being taken here, is there's a man within this church that exists at that time who's, you know, taken on the characteristics of Balaam, and, uh, you know, he's perverting it. So, if they know... If they, if they know their old text, they know of Balaam, then they'll know how to recognize this new Balaam that's in the church. In fact, we, we personally, I think we really should do a study on Balaam a little bit. But these were both warnings, and all of these are referenced to the Old Testament character of Balaam, who tried unsuccessfully, unsuccessfully to prophesy against the people of Israel. Numbers chapter 22. He eventually advised the king Balak of Moab the enemy of Israel, to pursue a campaign of seduction against them. Numbers 31, verse 8. The doctrine of Balaam is not only a serious problem, but a devious one. And when the frontal assault failed, Balaam took a backdoor approach. Balaam, a prophet from Mesopotamia, was willing to use his God-given talents or for, for illicit 
purposes, for his own gain. Even though he knew Balak was an enemy of God, he tried to sell his prophetic gift to help him. In fact, we have a lot of false teachers who do this today. Um, you got Todd White, a very uh, a heretical, a heretical, I got no respect for this man. He perverts the scriptures like crazy. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, he's another one who perverts it. Um, Bill Johnson, perversion. Uh, you got a whole bunch more we can list, and you, a lot of these would be found in the charismatic movement. And it's very, very concerning here. But he tries to use the scripture as a means to gain finances, to gain you know any sort of gain he can get in this world. Um, even though he knew Balak was God's enemy, he tried to sell his prophetic gift to help him. When that didn't work. Balaam counseled, <clears throat> excuse me, Balaam counseled Balak on the most effective way to weaken Israel. And this was through seduction, using Moabite and Midianite women to tempt Israel into sexual relationships and into pagan rituals. So they're basically luring Israel uh, away um, from true worship, from a true fellowship with God through pagan ideas. Uh, or on biblical practices of various kinds. The Israelites who participated brought God's judgment upon themselves. Numbers 25, 1 through 9. And according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, Balaam's way is a choice to promote falsehood for financial reasons. And according to Jude 1, 11, Balaam's error was his willingness to accommodate pagan beliefs out of greed. Jude 1 verse 4 also refers to the th sins of those who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. One trait for false teachers in the church that they attempt to turn Christian liberty into freedom to be promiscuous. You see this in Romans 14, 1 through 5. Uh, and there's a lot to that. It's not just pagan traditions. It's not just... Uh, getting into a sexual lifestyle that we can use, you know, a false sense of grace, you know, I can be forgiven. But we need to constantly remind ourselves this is not what God desires of us. He calls us to repent, and we'll get more into that here in the next, uh, uh, the next church as well. We are to live lives contrary to how the world lives. Continuing on, it says, Putting these ideas together gives a clear view of the doctrine of Balaam. It is the attitude that one can fully cooperate with the world and still serve God. Now, as we've already talked about, that is completely impossible. There's no possibility among the Christian faith to compromise with the ideas and the philosophical thoughts of the world. We cannot do that. The doctrine of Balaam teaches... Uh, compromise, wanting Christians to forget that they are called to be separate and holy. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26 is a reference point, as well as 1 Peter 1, chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, the doctrine of Balaam makes believers indistinguishable from the unbelieving world. Matthew 5, verse 13. And the doctrines of Balaam is a belief that a little sin, just a little bit, just a little tiny piece, does not hurt. Galatians 5 verse 9. Especially if there is some financial or personal benefit involved. 1 Timothy verse 6. 
or chapter 6, verse 5. A person following the doctrine of Balaam willing, is willing to compromise his beliefs for the sake of economics. He acts to, uh, to enable sinful behavior for personal gain or even participate in them. Romans 1, 32. A practical term, a practical term for teaching a do, or doctrine, for the teaching of the or doctrine of the of Balaam, is the view that Christians can or even should compromise their convictions for the sake of popularity. For which we have this charismatic movement, like I said, Bill Johnson, um, you know, Todd White, Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, Joyce Myers, Beth Moore, Andy Stanley, uh, Stephen Furtick, all of these 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 charlatans. Or um, say it said, or even should compromise their convictions for the sake of popularity, for the sake of money, for the sake of uh, sexual gratification or personal gain. It's the attitude that treats sin as no big deal. But as we know from Romans, that all sin, all sin, every single microscopic sin you can think of, from the from the smallest atom of sin to the largest boulder, the largest cosmic cosmic sin, whatever you want to measure that. Everything is deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. If you commit one sin, you're guilty of breaking them all. Christians can't and should not, and should not totally shun the presence of sinners or unbelievers. We should not totally shun. In other words, okay, if you see sin, get rid of them. That's not what it's saying here. Um, and references is Luke 7, verse 34, and 1 Corinthians 5, 19 through 13, which we uh, just discussed earlier. But we are obligated to stand up for truth, Ephesians 4, verse 25, righteousness, Proverbs 23, 20, and Romans 14, 22, and goodness, 2 Peter 1, 5, and Matthew 5, 16. Whether it's, whether it's what others want to hear or not, we should always stand up for it, um, whether they want to hear it or not. And that comes from John 4, 16 through 18. Um, in chapter 8, verse 11, as well as Acts 24, 24 through 35. Now, one of the things I do uh, want to close up with is, uh, is, I was thinking about this today. I'm not exactly sure how it popped into my mind. It popped on my mind while I was reading, but I saw it the other day. Very common verse. A lot of people know, but I think we really, we focus on the first half um, and not the second so I kind of want to read this full piece here for us to really grasp. It says, do not, this is verse uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 20, or I'm sorry, no, verse 1. Verse, I can't even get my numbers right. Chapter 12 of the book of Romans, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, for those of you who are listening on, you can recite the rest of it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the result of this that by testing, you may discern what is God's will and what is good, what is acceptable, and what is purpose. So essentially, what he's saying, this renewal of your mind, continuous learning, continuous study, continue to dig into the Word of God so that you can properly understand the Word of God. Not just these peaches and cream things that we'd find in, in churches today, but the harsh realities too. The means of you know, living our lives in a righteous lifestyle for God. The whole text of the Bible. We need to dig into that so that we do not fall into this compromise. Um, and we need to continuously ask ourselves, not just as a church, 
both as a church and as individuals, again, where is my sin? Where do I need to address it? As we discussed in the first one, um, am I so focused on the theological teachings, much like the Pharisees were guilty of, that I've really lost sight of, of digging into prayer and getting into communion and getting into the Word of God to really have that intimate relationship with Him? Is my sin, is my sin a lack of the first love? And that's not saying that you're not loving, but it's saying that you've really lost sight of having that intimate connection with God. You're not praying enough, right? or you're not praying, you know, and intimately, um, and you're not um, you're not digging into the Word of God. You're not, you know, reaching in to this study. And then, as we find here, compromise. We need to, as a church, be separated from the world in order to keep the church community pure. Uh, and to continue in a community growing in our sanctification together. One of, the, one of the ideas that I like to share quite a bit is that we do not, as in our homes, if we see trash lying around, we do not leave it lying around. We throw it in the trash. And when the trash bin or the trash basket, whatever you have, you know, gets too full, you don't keep it there. You take it outside for it to be disposed of properly you know, so that you're not bringing in more filth, that you're not bringing in the bugs and the germs and the mice and any sort of pests that come from keeping your trash floating around. You get rid of it. You clean your house because, you know, you don't want the stench. You don't want it to fumigate your house. So, likewise, we too need to be doing this with the church. Instead of compromising and allowing this trash to continue to waft around in our congregations, we need to be willing to spray some Febreze on them and say, hey, stop it. And if they don't stop it, then you take some bleach and you wipe them off. I'm not saying wipe them off as in, you know, out and bust a cap or anything, but I'm really saying that we need to, uh, we need to really be willing to purify the church of individuals who may be threatening the church. So, um, and this is something that the church of Pergamum was guilty of. Um, all for the sake of being welcoming, all for the sake of love. They allowed certain things to continue. So, um, my friends, that is really all I have for you today. I really hope you get to get something out of this. I hope there's some you know, additional thoughts, questions, comments, whatever you have. Uh, feel free to put them in the comments. Um, you know, feel free if you're watching, if you're listening to the audio, get a hold of us on Facebook, um, ChristianCornerstone.org. You can find some information. And again, if anybody was curious, um, I will be putting this book, a link in our store page. Um, and again, when you buy this book, it's not an affiliation. We're not getting any money out of this. I'm just, you know, it's just a library that I'm sharing useful resources. Uh, in fact, I'll actually have to put that on our website too, you know, a little heads up. But um, we'll get a link to you directly to the location of where you can purchase your own copy of John MacArthur's book, Christ's Call to Reform the Church. So we'll probably be sharing a little bit more of that um, in the next couple of days as we continue on with that. There's a lot of good stuff in there. You know, MacArthur, I think he does a very wonderful job with his teachings. Those of you who listen to these podcasts, I am a total fanboy. Um, you know, much like people were back in the day that they have Bieber fever. Um, I don't know what you'd call this. You know, Johnny, I got nothing. I don't really, I'm, I'm a Johnny boy. Johnny boy. Well, nah, that sounds a little weird. Uh, I'm a fanboy of John MacArthur's work. That's all. So again, any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to put them in the comments, get a hold of me, whatever it is that you might have. And you guys have yourself a wonderful day. Um, and tomorrow, tomorrow we will be talking about uh, the church in Thyatira. And this is a church of tolerance.
So um, be sure to grab your notes and uh, you jump on board with that. So without further ado, I'm rambling. You guys have yourself a very wonderful day. Stay healthy. Stay inside. God bless.